Apple in Austin, Texas. I'm married and have three lovely daughters. And some of you who are in this class with me here know uh, them and us quite well. And uh, so I'll be speaking to you as if we're friends and those listening by tape. Many of you are my friends, some of you I've not met yet. But um, we're holding this class in Hope Chapel at, in Austin, Texas. And it's October 95. Now what we're going to be uh, pursuing here is um, uh, this whole matter of God's glory. This is sort of cosmic in scope and yet it'll be really down to the edge of nitty gritty life. And uh, it'll be from my heart to some of yours. And every, every one of the six sessions, there's going to be about um, an hour and a half of time that we'll set aside just to, just to be going through scriptures. There'll be interaction, question and answers are, are real, real good any time. Go ahead and raise your hand. I'll try to repeat it for the tape. Um, uh, don't be intimidated. I've really yet to hear a real dumb question. I, uh, I don't get dumb questions because it just I don't I don't know if there are any. But so feel feel free to uh, interject. But there will be uh, opportunity for a little Q and A and opportunity for small group discussion around 8:30 or so. We want to um, move into some small groups. Uh, there may be some of you that are here that are part of a small group. That who has chosen to be here, and at that time we'll explore that and uh, and see if the, how that fits. And um, if there, if we're short on those handouts, uh, Gary, could you help me? Thanks. And um, we might as well get some more. I know some other people are coming. Now um, we're going to be spending some time in small group discussion about what you just learned. Let it soak in. Let it let it uh, spin out to where you live with uh, probably three or four other people in small groups uh, for about 15-20 minutes. Then we're going to have a time of, uh, of prayer together, seeking fresh life for God. And, and we all turn into pumpkins at 10 after 9, uh, at which point we just, you'll be free, we'll, we'll dismiss. And uh, you know, sometimes just hang time afterwards and stuff like that. Now here's the, um, here's the, here's the, the, the flow of the, um, of the course. There's going to be um, six sessions and we're just going to be going through uh, a biblical story. We're going to give you a good, really good intro on it tonight. It's really hot stuff. It's really fun uh, to, to walk with this trajectory through scripture. And, uh, and, and yet, let, let me just preface the whole class is that we're going to be reviewing some of the same things a little bit over again. So uh, if, if it doesn't all come into total focus or comprehension, Jot a note down and see what and see if it doesn't come up again. And uh, and yeah, don't don't get worried if um, if if you hear me coming back to a certain passage again and again, because there's certain things. Now there's a verse in Corinthians that says, "Whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God." How about that? You know that that seems to say that there's a total focus for our lives somehow on the glory of God. And yet um, the um, the the uh, the big scope, the big picture, is sometimes held with it, with this heavy religious fervor thing, and uh, and and it gets expressed in missions by a few people, and a lot of people have their, their lives just sort of sort of misfiring, and with an occasional uplift, and uh, and but the roller coaster sort of uh, keeps undulating through life, you know, if you're up times and you're down times, 
and, uh, and, and it's hard to get a, get a feel for you know, really what God's up to. And sometimes we don't have a, a, a big backdrop to understand tragedies that happen or, or good, good stuff that goes on or why is, this, why is our church doing something radical like going to Turkey or some other place like that. And, and, uh, and, what, and how do you make sense of just modern life? How do you do more than just cope with pressure? And so what we've, what we've uh, put on the placard of this thing is it's too late in history to be cool. In other words, just to be casual and laid back and, and you know, take it as it comes and float on a drift in, in, in Christian life as if, you know, I'm a Christian and now I'm down my decent till, till death do me part from the planet and uh, I go to the good place when I die. That, that's already proving very, very boring to live that way. And yet, you know, we, we know that we signed up to know him in, 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 in wonderful ways. A lot of us have experienced wonderful encounters with God. Just so there's a nearness, there's a sense of impressing in on us. But what's the big picture? What is it all for? What's it, what's it come forth to, uh, into? And, uh, and why would we do so expensive, costly things? And how do we reorder our lives in ways that we know really should? How do we find that motivation that isn't just these little spasms of compassion for other people and, and zealous kind of... Uh, from now on, I'm going to always kind of resolve, you know, the resolution uh, deal. And, and I'm going to be real. I'm gonna, and so that gets boring. So this Christian life has to be more than read your Bible more and pray more. There has to be more to it than this. You know, what, 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 what is it for? There's something about this person, Jesus. So we're going to go into that and, uh, and, and walk with him as he goes through it. Now, I've got this handout here. Um, and we're, in it you'll see that uh, uh, there's certain terms I'm going to, uh, on, on page two, there's about, what, five terms there that I've defined. And we'll define, we'll break into those because we need some terminology that we, we can um, deal with. There's passion and action. That's, that's going to be kind of an assignment should you, should you choose to do this and, uh, and press right into that. And so that's described for you. And every one of these weeks I'm going to have what I call a passion passage, you know, that just, just meditate and focus in on this, and, uh, and there's certain ones that, that are, these aren't like spiritual vitamins or something like that, it's, it's, it's the, 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 there's, there's a way of focusing our heart toward him. We're going to be spending a lot of time in prayer during the class, so um, it, 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 I have no problem with getting, you know, heavy, deep, and real in God, you know, and then just pulling out and, and telling you what, what the Greek text means in deponent verb language or something like that. Uh, and, and to me, that, that's all, it's all one singular realm of reality. So um, if, 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 some, if those are alternate realms for you, it's just like dig into what the scripture means and like have an encounter with God, you know, you're going to find those things get really close. So, are you ready to take note? You're going to need more space to take notes than I provided there on that paper. I never know how much space to leave uh, in that kind of thing, but... Um, I'd like you to uh, probably need other other pieces of paper. Now, um, but let's let's dive right into it. Turn again to pursue His greater glory. What do I mean, turned again? Uh, there was a couple guys, and uh, and by the way, bring a Bible. Still preface here. Bring a Bible, and I would prefer us to use New American Standard. We could have that be our class standard, and. Um, and if you don't have one, just bring any Bible you've got. A lot of the scriptures. 
I'll be flashing up on the wall. They're generally New American Standard with uh, the these and thous ripped out of and changed back to normal language. And sometimes even something more literal than New American Standard goes. I usually just go as, as stiff and literal as possible, and that way you get to the, the bullseye generally of what, what the author meant when he wrote the text, and we can usually catch up with that. There's no, you don't need to dumb it down that much. Um, NIV is, is, is incredibly uh, paraphrastic. Just for example, the, uh, the passion passage for the week, John 17. The whole, all day today we're going to be talking about the name of God. And as you see there in John 17, it says, I have made your name known, and I will make it known. This is Jesus' solemn declaration to the Father. NIV says, well, I've, I've made you known. Nothing about the name, you know, and, and, and the, the, this theme of the name of God is immense in Scripture. And if we can get after the name, a lot starts making sense. But it's obliterated from the NIV paraphrase. So uh, it's not like I'm down on NIV. It's just it's an attempt to help uh, folks on their first, th third, eighth reading when you're not really trying to get at what, it, what, it's, what the original author really probably meant. You're just trying to get a, 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 an idea but it really does skip over and, and, and trim down to a Reader's Digest type of tidy, minuscule vocabulary. So I'm not trying to uh, down NIV. It's just you're going to need a literal translation. It was King James to track with that. But I'd like you to bring a Bible. I can't take the, t uh, you know, it takes incredibly long. It takes me about 10 minutes or sometimes half an hour to do every one of these acetates. And it's taken years to build up these. And uh, I'm always... Uh, losing them and doing them over again, but um, uh, here we go. Now Luke 24, there's a passage in there which says, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We're going to pray that again, but let's do it now as we go, dive into the scriptures. Lord Jesus, we've come to you. We've not come to a class to just um, fill the, the time on Wednesday night. We have come out of hunger, For you, there's a yearning that's honest and true in us for you to see more of you, to follow you more dearly, closely, abundantly. And Lord, we, we've, we sense this rise of hope in our hearts because we, we've come near enough to you to know that, the, that you're passionate about us and that you have never um, gone through moody times regarding us. You don't get depressed. You never disappoint. And you're just incredibly satisfying to our soul whenever we've come near enough to you to be quiet and hear your words. We've known many times we've opened the book and, and the words have just been swimming on the page, ink on paper. And there's other times that somehow your spirit comes and puts some kind of candle power to the page and we hear your voice. And it doesn't say anything different than what the Bible's saying, but it seems like you're saying more, like you're louder somehow. You're a great teacher, and we've come to you to follow you. That's what we're here for, to, for you to speak to us and for us to come uh, close to you in an irretrievable way. We've come somehow to abandon our hearts to you. We have them in our uh, that our hearts are out of our grasp to, to hurl at your feet. But Lord, you can, you can woo us in ways we can't even fathom. And so I ask you 
Dear Master Messiah, wonderful teacher, would you please teach us as we come near to you tonight and enjoy this time together. Amen. So, it starts off, a couple guys are walking down this Emmaus Road. You've seen, you've seen the picture before, somehow. That Jesus just died and there's rumors he's raising it from the dead. Some people have been down to the tomb and so they even saw him. But these guys are totally dejected and they're walking down the semester, kind of shuffling down. But it's almost like they're, they're, they're it's almost like when your tongue kind of find, uh, pokes at where you've had dental work or something like that. And they just can't seem to let it go. It's like, well, who, what, what really happened? We thought this guy was going to redeem Israel for, for us and all this kind of thing. And so as they were um, going along, they, they were really... Uh, feeling sorry for themselves. And here's what Jesus said when he came up to them. Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. How about that? How, is that how you think Jesus would address you? O foolish... Uh, you know, that's kind of rude, you know. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. But that's exactly what Jesus said to these guys. That somehow they were slow of heart. And, uh, and foolish somehow. To believe in all that the prophets have spoken. There's something that Jesus is going to go into in a totality. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? So what Jesus began to do, it says, is he began to just tell them, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he explained all the things about himself that, you could, that were in Scripture. Now, what I want to assert to you is that, is that he was going, starting with Moses early in the Bible and went later down the timeline, all the prophets, and it says later in Luke 24, include the writings, or, or excuse me, the Psalms, which are, are prophetically oriented, but basically the story and the, and, the, and the prophetic commentary on that story, Jesus goes through, I believe, the story. And that's why he went through every, every book, not just to get chapter and verse to, to wow these guys. He was telling all the things about himself. And basically what he tells about himself is there's a story on and, he, and how do I know that? It says that there's something he went through in order to culminate into something of entering his glory. Now take note of that phrase, to enter his glory. To enter his glory. See, the, the, the glory um, there, we're going we're gonna to talk about glory, we're going to define it, we're going to explore it. But you see, don't think here that it's just afterlife. Uh, that it's the eternal spheres of things that are beyond our reckoning or knowing or telling right now. It turns out this is uh, something that hangs on the timeline as well. And it's something Jesus enters. And we're going to explore this later. But basically this is the end of the story. And so he begins to, to tell this whole story from the end. But starts at the beginning with Moses' writings and starts unfolding all the things that are really a story about himself coming into a, a situation that he calls his glory. Now, wh why, why that's so significant is that um, he wasn't just picking up Bible verses, he was going through all the scriptures. So it, he wasn't proof texting, obviously. So what, what I think happens, he told the whole story somehow, scanned through this whole thing. They, they, when they got to the village where they're going to go, he acted as if he's going to go further, and they said, please stay with us, and began to eat uh, with them. No, they said, ask him to lead in prayer. As he begins to give thanks and lead in prayer, they found that they had joined him somehow, and suddenly he vanished from their sight. 
And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Was not one our hearts burning? There's something that went ignited. Here's, here's Jesus comes up to these guys, they're slow of heart. And they say, something happened to our hearts. When we were going, we were walking along that story thing, that the scriptures, something was torching off in our hearts. Wasn't that different? That was, was something expansive. Something happened. Something went beyond a kindling point in us. And what it says they did is they, they, they jumped um, out of there and they went back to Jerusalem which was the most dangerous place on the planet for them to be and uh, because of, of known followers and fraternizers of Jesus he just got killed all the rest of the followers were in locked doors they, they knew where the locked doors were that's why they, I know they were inner circle guys that were associated with this kind of thing and so they knocked on the closed doors and said, oh it's him and they come in you know and, 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 and Jesus encountered them all again and then again the next week and you can, and you can scan through Luke 24 and, and when Jesus was with all these guys Luke 24 verse 44 he said to them these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you Jesus didn't tell them anything brand new that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled there's something awesome about this thing, when Jesus goes through it, it says it, it, it's not just that there's a Bible verse and I'm the Messiah he's not trying to proof text that he's, he's the guy who died for your sins he's trying to tell them there's something that the scriptures have been saying that God has been enunciating for a long time has been acted out kind of choreographed and, 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 and things have been unfolding to leave a situation where something must be fulfilled and all the scriptures coming to a culmination and it's all about himself and something has to happen and it must be fulfilled it can't maybe happen there's no contingency really Something must be fulfilled, and it's all about Him, and something about His glory. And notice the two parts in this, in verse um, 26, it says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter His glory? Two parts there, just the, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow us. First Peter goes into it. Look at these same things, same two things. Verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer, and then what, what comes next? The glories. To enter His glory. I'm going to suggest to you that a good portion of what it means to for Christ to enter His glory is described here at the last part of verse 46 and the first part of verse 47. He could rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. To all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, something immense and public and global would come forth for Jesus' namesake. And as people begin to hear that and, 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 and take hold of the repentance and the forgiveness of sins in His name, Jesus gains a following. Jesus begins to transform lives and it's known that he's the life transformer. And then his huge followings start coming forth. That this is what we're going to read in scripture. And a Messiah begins, begins to govern and lead forth. And he begins in very real substance to enter a glory. And so this is what he's unfolding. He says there's a part of this glory that's going to happen on the planet within history 
and you are part of it, you're going you're to behold it. You're going to actually be part of those that enact it. And see what what was alive in their heart. What is the heart? What is this heart torching? What is this this fire of the heart? What do hearts do? Hearts basically desire. And so what what's going on here is their hearts were slow to move, slow to really let their desire match what their beliefs were. They believed the Bible was true, but they they couldn't dare let their heart like just really buy it all. And Jesus says, you guys are slow of heart, let me help you. And he began to race through the scriptures and tell them what all the, the story was all about in terms of himself. And something lifted up because they began to see that what they really wanted was something to happen for Jesus. Something to happen for the Messiah. For him to enter his glory. That, that was their highest desire. That's what they signed up for. That he was so worth it that they wanted that to happen. And it wasn't just that it was a probability and it might come forth that you know he's raised from the dead and maybe he'll show up again or something it was be- they became convinced somehow God in- spoke through the scriptures loud enough so that they had in their hearts this is really going to happen it must be fulfilled and they didn't and, and somehow their hearts rose to that and says what the scripture says is really going to happen it's not just a bunch of pie in the sky it's going to happen real soon, right here, and he's the one. And so their hearts cut loose to begin to pursue and to lay hold of what they wanted most, what they desired most. Now part of the reason that they were a little bit slow on this, I think, is because they had... Um, they had been focused on themselves. If you look at Luke 24, it says, We had hoped that he would come and save Israel. That's what we thought. We thought he would come and help us out. And, and so what, what, what happened to them is what can happen to us. Is we begin to find uh, the biggest extra box we got in our closet that's us-sized. And try to, try to pick and choose from what God has to offer and say, I'll be satisfied with that. And so they were going to be kind of satisfied with a little redemption from Roman overlordship, a little bit of oppressor, uh, a little political transformation. And, uh, and yet they're following me around because there's something more to this guy. But all they wanted was a little help to get their life kind of together. To help them cope with the situation. You see, does this sound familiar? And so, as they began to focus on what their needs were and what, and what God could maybe do for them, and the world began to revolve around themselves, you see. And there's a certain gravity to your being. That's, that's, that, I don't know if it's juvenile or what it is, that we, we, we insist on the world revolving around ourselves. And, 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 and it, that's where despair starts, is somehow being self-centered. So I'm going to be, part of the next point is to move on to looking at how we can be God-centered somehow. That's what this whole course is about. But, but these guys, when they began to realize that, this, that the scriptures were all about Him and not all about God doing something for them, You'd think they would have got bummed out. It says, gosh, so it's not going to happen. 
I mean, if you were walking along and you really just want a little political freedom, you just walk along and see, well, he's just gonna, they're just going to preach something all over the place. I mean, the place isn't going to change at all. It's not, the government's going to stay the same. How boring. And yet, no, their hearts torched. They went, they went blazes. They said, oh, and there was some kind of rise of gladness in their being. So they said, we don't just have to cope. Here's what was happening. Their hearts were set free to desire something immense for someone else. And it was like their heart found their element. It was like fish finding water. It was like, it was, it, it, it was somehow their heart, when they believed the whole thing, when they took in the whole thing, their heart started igniting and going on blazes. Now, there's, there's um, a few simple changes that I think happen when, um, when people move from being a self-centered to a Christ-centered life. Here's the, here's the beams and girders of my worldview. And we're going to come back to this Luke 24 passage. But um, there's a triple conversion from a self-centered to a Christ-centered life. And uh, the, the heights kind of dimension, I would, I would call that the, um, the, 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 the history, the, uh, the, the, the length of this thing. Somehow, I don't know, height or depth or whatever it is, but, but the, 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 the length of this thing was, was that there was, I think I meant to say length length there or whatever but uh, it, uh, it turns out that, that they instead of living in little brackets short horizons of like half hour TV shows or their own lifespan or what would happen to them this month or what would happen to them this week and, and our lives shrink like that too if you're just living for to catch up with the moment and to deal with the present situations if you're just having a string of little moments of little experiences, you've succumbed to what, what, what Satan has devised to just box us in to be little circumstantial responders to situations. And you're just, you're just breathing in and sucking and saying, I want to be in despair the rest of my life with a few uh, happy moments. And so the biggest pursuit that you can get out of that is uh, pursuit of happiness along with supposedly life and liberty. But that's what this whole country is about, is just li is little happy moments, little Disneyland fake experiences that have to eat tickets spent, it's gone, you know, and you had another moment of titillation and interest and non-boringness. But ha it better be jazzier next time, and so we're suckers for this. And, 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 and Christ is calling you to move out of that and one of the ways you're going to have to stretch and find that you're not just a point on a you're not just this moment this week but, but you're going to need to start living as if you had a depth of, of, of history to you and so what I'm going to be doing is putting things all on a timeline and, and I'm asking you to allow God to convert you away from your self-centered momentary life to step in and walk with Jesus you thought he was you thought he was walking with you while you're walking with Jesus down Emmaus Road, drifting off to your own little house, 
to cope with your own situation. Jesus sneaks up alongside you. Don't even know it's him. But, but as you begin to go through scripture, it's like something starts coming alive. starts waking up. You see, there's something more than just me getting my act together or getting the bills paid or, or fussing around with, with minutia. There's something immense that's larger because it's longer. There's something that's better than just urgencies. There's something ancient. And see, what that does is it elevates life and your whole, and your whole being to a significance that's way beyond just coping with the present moment and fighting through the circumstances, you see. And so, one of the things, the first, first dimension three D, the, uh, of a new identity, the 3D ID, would be a historic thing. There's something that God's always going to stretch you to, to be part of Abraham's family which starts a long time ago and moves all the way to the end. And, and you're going to find this all the way through the New Testament. It's not just uh, something I'm, I'm overlaying on this. It's, you know, Paul says in Philippians, you know, that, you, that uh, he who began a good work and you will perfect it all the way up until maybe next month, you know, when, uh, you know, when, when I have to give a thing in Sunday school. I said, no, clip until the day of Christ. Well, gosh, what about the people who died before? How does that verse apply to them? See, break out of the self-centered thing. You know what verse I'm talking about? You began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ. I want to bring that up for a reason, because there's something historic about that. And see, history isn't just what used to happen. The history, when I say historic, I mean a timeline that's primarily tethered on the end. Keep that taut all the time. A line that's tethered way into to the end of days. He enters his maximal glory, the greatest glory. And, 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 and all the nations bow at his feet. See, that's a Philippians 2 thing. That's New Testament stuff. And you're supposed to just, basically hope is like a rope where you just pull it tight and you, and you pull yourself toward the end. That is his, that's how you do history Bible style. You're not driving in your rearview mirror saying, how, how, how do we get ahead here? You know, I think I'm going straight because it looks straight behind me. That's not how you move ahead. Bible style life is, is being so, knowing you're such an ancient people that there is a purpose that involves you. Even your effort today matters for the very end. You start living long range style. It, 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 it's, it's humbling because you begin to start realizing your life is just but a vapor. But it's amazing. Only in the day of Christ do you have any significance ultimately. Otherwise you are just blown in the wind. But what we're going to see here is, is, it, is it be, to be heirs with Christ as well. If we suffer with him, see the sufferings of Christ, also be glorified with him see and there's some sort of significance being bound up with Jesus that's why you really want to walk on, walk with him in this that's historic second one the, is, is a different one um, what do we have there the, the breadth the only word I can come with here is corporate there's a familyhood to you there's a there's a there's a multi-individual identity you're part of a people, not just a person. That's hard for a Westerner to understand. Most of the cultures of the world, you tell them, um, we are us, and they get that. And you say, I'm me. They go, well, yeah, I guess. But they think of themselves more as a corporate, plural entity than they do a solo individual. And Americans are so radically 
individuated. Is that a good word? And, 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 and dissected up in these little tiny individuated automaton life that, that we just think that's what, that's what reality is. That's what life is. And, and, and that's why you can't understand big hunks of the Bible. Even our English language has eliminated the second person plural pronoun. And we have to fix it by saying y'all. To you means singular you, but it also basically means you. But, but our individualized society has not required us to sort that out because we think just individual. Every once in a while we need a plural so we go y'all or use guys or something. Okay. That verse I already quoted in Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Christ. The you is plural. He who began a good work in you, God's people, Philippian church, is going to mature that and bring it to some kind of magnificence clear up until the day of Christ. It won't stop bearing fruit and moving forward. Even though generations pass, centuries pass, what he began in you, a people of God in a place, will not pass until it comes forth. It's that virile and alive and full. You see, and, and if, if, if you're so focused on yourself that that doesn't make a blip on your screen, that you're part of a people, you're not going to get whole hunks of Scripture. It's going to be real tedious. And, and you're always going to be looking, thumbing through the Scripture to try to get something out of it for you. Because you're going through stuff today. You're really having a rough one. You know, and, uh, and, 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 and all you did was just stand in line for the roller coaster. says, well, I, you know, I, I, I want to... I want to have a jazzy experience with God. I'm not feeling Him or something like that. And, and, and whereas God is calling you to be part of His people and walk with Him. You see that? So I'm, I'm there has to be a, a growth, a maturity, almost a conversion to say, and it's not that I renege myself. Actually, only biblical religion, the, the, the best alive versions of Judaism and Bonafide following Jesus Christianity. Only those religions of, uh, of all the others that you can find actually have an abundant uh, sense of the individual. That you really are somebody named and known and thought about by God all the time. You just can't get his mind off you. He's just stuck on you. And, and sure enough, even to Americans to come up with statements like, if you were the only person, Jesus would have come and died for you. You know, we, Only we say those kind of things. <laughs> only recently. It didn't occur to anybody else. And if just one person comes to Christ, it makes it all worth it. So we're, trying to, we're def- desperately trying to, gr- to pin this down, that individuals are ultimately worthwhile. The Bible doesn't seem to say so. Although it does have, there is a, a forever worth of the individual. There's also, only in, only in Christ, do you have both. You are named, but we are a people for His name. And so, get, get, get used to the abundance of identity that is yours in Christ. And so, but but if, if you walk with a people, then it's not like, well, I don't know if I can do the covenant because like... I'm not sure if I agree with that or something. It's like, well, that, that may be well beside the point. You know, how are you part of God's people is probably the, the larger issue than, than are your needs being met and do you agree with things or something. And, uh, and so th- th- there's a hugeness there. Okay, the, the other dimension is what I call the depth and that is heaven and earth dimension. 
that, that there's, there's something where God is doing something on earth and what is he doing on earth? He's bringing heaven close. He's bringing heaven very near. And there's some sort of dimension of growth where you have an open heaven and, and, and you're not thinking of earth as something to get away from and go to heaven when you die as if that's an alternate other place. There's actually a dimension of heaven going very near to earth. And, and let me give you, just to, to bring to clarity from Luke 24, Here's, here's how I find all three things. Jesus walked with them through the story of Scripture. Jesus walked with them through the story. And they found their hearts alive with the story of what God was bringing to culmination. Something God was doing something for His Son, and it was glory. We're going to talk about glory in a minute. And then, you see, when He broke bread with them, they actually were, were together in their houses to stay with us. And, and they began to adjoin themselves. And, and as we, this is early Eucharist, early communion, and Jesus breaks bread, and somehow they, they encountered him, and they, they somehow realized they were part of a larger deal. And they ran from there, directly from there, to be part of the larger body of people that were on assignment in Jerusalem, you see. And so they, they, they knew who they belonged to. They weren't just going to their own hometown to kind of find their way along. They found, because, because Jesus redirected them into this new corporate entity. He was calling forth and forming the church, the people of God. And they recognized that as well. There's something larger was happening even than just Israel. And then the, 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 the third thing, the heaven and earth dimension, look how Luke 24 ends up. Um, it, has, it ends up where he led them out as far as Bethany, Luke 24, 50, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. Where did he go? It says real clearly in Acts 11, he, he lifted up in clouds into the heavens. And he blessed them. That's the parting gesture we have from the Lord Jesus. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. I have this thought that, and we're going to go over this later in the class about the fourth and fifth lesson. We're going to go over the temple of God, the house of God. What is that? The whole story of how God brought forth the house of God. And what it's all about. It's basically the encounter house of God. That's where heaven comes close to earth. And where God designs us to approach the courts of heaven by walking through a replica of the house physically on earth. And so that's where they went. Jesus was parted for them. Basically, they chased him uh, to heaven by going to the temple. They said, well, you know how to get to where he is in heaven. Like, and, and, and they were in the temple, blessing him back. You comprehend what I'm saying? Jesus, Jesus wasn't gone away to afterlife forever. They knew where to encounter heavenly stuff and entities and beings and they knew how to keep a living joy in God and Jesus. And it was something about the, 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 the forever opened heaven because of Jesus. That heaven wasn't so very far. It was as near as just going down to the temple and worshiping and blessing God back. They, they had every reason to believe they would personally encounter God there. That's why they were such abundant joy. They weren't abandoned, you see. If they were just like left, if they were left as orphans, they would just like be, wow, I thought it was all going to work out, and now he's gone again. 
they knew that there was that, that heaven wasn't so very distant that he could be encountered. Do you see that? Now, what I'm going to encourage you to do is, is to let God stretch you in those three dimensions. To become someone with historic depth. So your identity stretches back to Abraham all the way to the day of Christ. I'm going to encourage you to be the kind of person that, that understands and, and enjoys your identity with people. And also a person who enjoys walking with God with a sense of intimacy and nearness even though it's veiled from our sight. Okay, now, um, what, what we're going to be uh, going over is, um, that is going to be, let's, let's um, Jack, could you uh, maybe cut the tape at this end and we'll flip the, flip the tape, I think we've gone over. What I'd like for you to do, just, if just a couple minutes, um, yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll flip this in. What glory? Here's a short definition of glory. It comes from the Hebrew word of either weight or brilliance. Something about substance. It's heavy, therefore it's really real, or it's just beautiful. It's awesome because it glows. This has some sort of intrinsic value to it. A certain and the beauty is the closest word I get to it. And so any. Any created thing has a certain kind of order of glory to it. Paul said there's a glory of this created thing, there's a glory of that kind of thing. There's a distinctiveness that is is branded into every kind of glory. Even the heavens are shouting out something of the glory of the one who created them. So you have every entity, angel, human, whatever, and even animals have a certain kind of beauty. They've been formed with it. There's some kind of value to them. But Imagine the value of one who created them. And so, whenever this beauty or value is recognized and, and, and somehow perceived, what, what it means to be formed in the image of God somehow is also being able to recognize the value and to say something about it. That's why when you see a sunset, it's like it's such a drag to like see it yourself and there's no one there. You just like, you try to suck up the beauty and you can. You try to like film it. And, and, and But in, invariably, you try to explain it to someone else. You take these little pictures, you get the snapshot back, and go, well, you know, it was really immense, you know. Like, and, 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 and you have trouble with that because somehow, together, you go, look at that, and you go, yes. And somehow, there's a magnificence to beauty perceived and glory apprehended. Now, when glory is recognized and restated somehow and called on so that I and I and I see it and perceive it together, that is to praise something. That is to bring, that is actually what we mean the verb to glorify someone, is to recognize something of its intrinsic value and to speak of it, to recognize it. You see that? That's what we've been doing. You're wired to do that. You can't live very long without doing that. Angels can do that. But I'll tell you something. I, as a guess, I never know. Angels perceive God so, so uh, with utmost accuracy. All that God will want them to perceive. Like some of these beings have eyes all the way within. You know, lots of them. You can imagine, you know, what, what does that look like, a being like that? And you think, whatever you'd feel in the presence of that thing, you would feel 
utterly perceived. If it has eyes in the center of its being, it could see the core of you. You know, it's like, ah, you know, and, and just, and, the, and God has ordained beings like that that perceive with utmost grandeur and height of perception that, that they would speak forth and sing and, and, and enunciate. Angels do that with perfect precision. Here's a guess. They don't do it with love. But the lisping little kid, your daughter, your nephew, could sing Jesus Love Me. God shut down whole banks of angels just to tune in on that. Because this little, this little guy, this eight-year-old guy, loves God. Or grandma on her deathbed just says, thank you, God, for the tough things that's been on you. And God is beloved in a way that is, is a distinctive grandeur of the human person, of the human, of the human order. What is man that you, that you desire him? That you take note of him? What is, the, what is the human creature? You've said all kinds of things, but you've put praise in his mouth. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've, put, you've added something to him. You see, that speaks to the very destiny of what it means to be a person. Is that we know, we're written, we're written inside that we know that the crown goes here. With some sort of glory and honor. And Hebrews 2 says, we have not yet seen humanity crowned with glory and honor. But we do see one. And he is crowned with glory and honor. And in him, you see it says, he leads many sons, Hebrews 2, to glory. That's what it says. See, that's what, that's what I, I'm setting loose in your heart. That's what Jesus wants you to set loose. Is he is entering his glory and he's taking you with him. And that's what you signed up for. That's why I call hope being released to your highest desire. A desire that you didn't know you could hope that much. You could wish that much for yourself and for others. That's why it's so important that you understand that you're part of a corporate reality. Because it doesn't make sense that God would do all these immense things just for you and your own son. And you, and, you, and you misperceive the greatness because what he's doing is, is all the saints together. I mean, Daniel sees this thing that made him just tremble. Daniel saw an Son of man, one like the Lord, you know, he's open heavens, you know, he sees this one like a son of man, one like a human person, and he's given to him, was given glory and honor and power to reign over everything. Who is that? And he knew it was a, a singular entity, and yet the answer was, This is the saints of the Most High, and the mystery. And the obvious grandeur of that blew him away. It would be obscene if it wasn't in the Bible that God intends fully to, to glorify you with His Son. I'm inviting you 
to go ahead and walk down the road with Jesus away. And, and you realize the destination that we're walking is He's going to enter His glory. He's going to be followed. He's not just going to be famous. He's going to be beloved with a passion, with a rise, with a crystal clarity. Every eye gazing together, beholding the full immensity of all that Jesus is. And somehow you're with Him in it. You and all kinds of other millions of children bound together there. Your destiny, sure, all these things must be fulfilled. And it's not contingent that there's significance for you at the last, after all. And so you can just let your heart loose to say, I should, if it comes around your bed, you've heard me say this before, I shoot the moon. I'm going for it all. You can start living with abandon because you can bank on it that the Lord Jesus ultimately comes into glory. And this is all worth it. That's why Paul says, so I'm just giving you examples. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we've been studying as a church, you know, is it, is it, is it, oh, just fleeting little momentary suffering afflictions are, are building up an incredible weight of glory far beyond any comparison. So, I mean, though I get killed, that's a big so what. <laughs> because, because for me to live is Christ. The die is gained, Philippians 1. But he, but he lives with this singular thing. You see, that my, my proud boastful confidence, that the single thing I've got in my life, is that whether, whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in my body. In my whole life story. Whatever my little fleeting vapor of a life is, whatever days there are, Christ be exalted. Because to live is Christ and to die, that would just be gain. He's very clear because it's the glory of God. Because the fruit, full labor that will come forth the glory. See, the, the, the people that, that, that are, are, are writing scripture and reading scripture are, are aware that something's up that's immense for, for God's people select somehow, chosen out, and just because they're beloved. And God, you see, is exalting them. We're not just slipping in, sliding in through the gate with a debate with Peter at the door. There's not like a, a balance and well, I guess you're in. Yeah, and uh, there's nothing like that. There is, as Jesus is raised up, exalted, and seated with Christ, you, with, with God at the right hand of the Father, you already in God's heart and mind what he's willed is that you would be holy and blameless before him That's the, and, the, and to do that he'll glorify who he's justified these he also sanctifies or something else he foreknew these he also preordained predestined these he also justified these he justified these he also glorified so I'm not just trying to say hey there's something in it for you Christ is so eager to enter His glory. It's the joy set before Him. He's just not going to do anything without, without getting the whole thing. And He's thinking about you all the time. He says, i got, I got to bring Betty. i got to bring John. we got to bring some from the Susan truck. we got to bring some from, from Hot and Tots. we got to have Eskimos. And because there's something of substance that just only enraptures Christ's heart all the more. So I just behold the Son of God sneaking up alongside His people and when it's a crucial moment He gathers us again to hope. 
Hope is just letting loose and letting you slipping into highest desires. Let me give you a couple exp- explanations of what of what hope is. Then we're going to break into. Um, mm-hmm. Can't find it. Oh, there it is. Hope is hope always has something to do with glory. Here's Romans eight and uh, Romans eight seventeen. If children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, we also may be glorified with Him. Here's the basic story of your life, and it's not like we have glory now, but God's going to get glory. Christ gets glory now. We do see one crown with glory and honor. And it's okay to just to just walk with Him regardless of the cost. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed with us. I'm going to associate now the whole idea of hope is always having to do with glory. Always to do with the beauty. Always to do with the ravishing goodness. A neat and loveliness. It's not just, it, it's not just this pasty, dull, religious, fervent thing of being decent. It's beauty itself. It's what is attractive in ultimate ultimate ways and practical day-to-day ways. And for the anxious line of creation, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. There's something up, global, of course. And it says, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23, even we ourselves growing within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, I suppose, the redemption of our body, bringing full value to what's physical. It's not just escape and getting out of the body so we can just be ghosts up in heaven that's, un- that's non-physical. Now, that's the heaven and earth continue. That there's something alive and physical on the earth that is filled with heaven's reality. That's what God's doing. For in hope we have been saved, but hope of the seen is not hope. That's strange. Hope that is seen is not hope. What is that? That's because there's this expectancy that's going to be full. But because you're tasting that you have it in your mouth a morsel of the goodness you know what's, you're not just going to order something from the menu you're going to order everything from the menu tonight the whole cook the whole chef's house is going to come down on you and you get and it's not like you wonder what it smells like you're satiated right now you t- you can't take any more but you know you've got appetite for more that's what hope is like that's the experience of hope it's basically desire set loose and it happens, and you do it by faith and love. But here it is. But if we hope for what we do not see, if, 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 there's a, if there's a satisfaction in our soul, we say, yes, this is good, but there's better later. With perseverance, we wait, or we press, or we pursue eagerly for it. Here's another example. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. There's something up about us being transformed. And such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us, didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, but it hasn't yet appeared. What we shall be? What are we going to be on? It hasn't really seen yet. But we know we got the identity, but there's something up that we're, we're going to be different than we are. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him just as He is. And, and that kind of expectancy that we have the substance now and there's better later. That is what hope is. Everyone who has this hope in Him begins to do what? Start purifying themselves, even as He is pure. That hope is, 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 is that anchor of the soul that makes you start saying, yes, I'm pursuing it, I want it. Um, 
No, I, I'm going to do this one later. Now, how did this story start out? I think, I think uh, we could start it in Genesis, and we'll go back to Genesis next time. But I, here's what I want to do. is start out where the story probably began, with God getting himself famous. Now, there's a double direction to his glory. And uh, what God does in getting himself famous, he reveals his glory. That's why I want to go over this um, the sentence there. God reveals his glory to all nations that he may receive glory from all creation. There's a double direction. Psalm 96 says that, that God is revealing, he wants to declare his glory to the nations. His wonderful deeds to all peoples. Something is to be declared. Something, and that's what evangelism is, basically is. Evangelization, missions, all that stuff. What is that all about? It, God wants the world to know something of His beauty. And it's, it's, it can be articulated in language. It can be demonstrated in any, any number of ways. But God wants the world to know who He is. And there's, so there's a revealing of His glory. But it's not just God showing off and having, an, having impactful communication. It turns out there's a, there's a rationale for that. Psalm 96 also says, says, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord the glory of His name. Come into His courts. Bring an offering. And give glory to God. See, there is a revealing of glory to the earth with a purpose. There's a back, uh, there's a back uh, uh, upstroke to it. From the earth, God will receive glory. That's what I mean by being perceived and spoken of and glorified. But I, I, I'm going to be going over later what I call, uh, uh, for lack of any other better term, transactional worship. Somehow the, the despair has settled like cold dust in our hearts for centuries and we thought we're just pitching up little, little um, pantomimes and, and songs, kind of faxing our worship up to heaven, you know, and God reviews it a week later, something like that, because He has... You know, he does strange things with time, you know, but, but since he's not, he's not moved by these things, he doesn't need them, he doesn't, you know, necessarily, you know, get into them all that much. But you better do it right and not make a mistake and not embarrass yourself in front of God and everything. No, it turns out God is, it has, has great power to listen. That's mainly what the Trinity does. It's to keep, you know, the Father listens to what the Son requests. And the Son always does what the Father is hearing. And the Spirit searches the depths of the being of God. And, and if anything, God is a great listener. He's a great receiver of worship. We're going to go over how God receives worship. And He actually receives glory. Hence the fruit of the labors of them. We're going to start next, next week. We're going to start with the first worship occasion that we know. And that is going to be Cain and Abel, how they brought in the fruit of the labors and was received. God's impacted, obviously pleased. Or I don't know why Cain was upset when he saw what he saw. We're going to go over that next week. But you see, God receives glory as the intended purpose of why he would reveal his glory. We're going to go through scripture story twice. This session and next week's session are about God revealing glory to all the earth. How has He orchestrated this phenomena of, of letting the world know who He is? We didn't take a vote on what should we name God this month. It was nothing like that. You know, God has made Himself known or we don't know Him. There's not been, you know, a close encounter of the fourth kind that someone sort of, you know, didn't notice that they, they, out of the peripheral vision they got a glimpse of him and, and, and turned that into the government. 
and so we know about God. There's all there's not some guru that has perfected a, a secret way that you have to take intermediate lessons before you can find out how to how to perceive God like Him. And then he ends up telling you you're God or something like that. And uh, there's nothing like that. God has revealed Himself. We're going to go over the, the drama of how that has happened globally. And there is one singular ongoing saga. One big event. If you were to see it fast forward, you say, whoa, that's a story. And that's what, that's what happened to these guys as they're walking down the road. And he says, whoa, look at that. Moses, prophets, everything. You know, you can see it clearly from the end because God's been organizing, orchestrating all kinds of events and, and, and the center of them all goes through scripture. But there's nothing that's happened in all the human affairs that hasn't have a part in this great story of God be, making himself known. We're going to go over that the remainder of our time tonight and tomorrow. Of God revealing His glory. That downward direction of glory. There's another direction. And we're going to spend three sessions on this. Of how God receives glory. And it's, it's, it's the whole phenomenon of worship and the destiny, the goal of what we're pursuing when, when we evangelize our friends at work or do kind deeds or something like that. Is that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I mean, don't hand out water on Saturday just to like, because Ron's there. And, and it, would, it would get you in good standing. I mean, uh, that's, that, that, you know, or maybe there's extra credit if you do that. You know, that's, that's exactly what Jesus is. If you're going to do that kind of stuff, do it so people can see your good deeds. They see, that's what you did. That's, you're sincere. That's you. You meant that. But they do it in such a way that they say, whoa, there's someone back of this. And they begin to glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, this, this, this reality of God getting glory for himself, you see, becomes the integrating passion of it all. Now, I realize I just left out one of my center points of, of, of moving those three different things, the three dimensions. You've got to widen out that circumference to get another center. And see, Jesus goes through the whole story, says it's all about me. All things concerning himself. Basically, what I'm calling you is to break out a self-centered life to a God-centered life. All my teaching really amounts to is radical Christocentrism, which means it's all for Jesus. So if you do evangelism, it's for Jesus. If, if, if you're serving people, it's, it's because Jesus gets something out of you. But what does he get out of it? So I'm trying to break you out of a fundamentally humanistic structure as if God's sealed off in the attic and doesn't get anything out, just watching it like a movie to judge it. And, ha- and, and welcome to the real world. God is dynamically in the center of all things. And, 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 and the affairs of this earth matter so much, He would send His own Son to die. That's how it, it deeply involved He is in all this. And you can ha- have your heart well up and break out on fire of, uh, of desire for Him to be beloved that it begins to be a passion. It begins to integrate and simplify life instead of having it just veer off on little projects and little lesser affairs. You can do all kinds of little things like, like, like trim your roses, but it has an integration point. That this, it's lovely to have a wonderful family and home and situation just because God likes all kinds of beauty. And you can do it as unto Him as well as your friends and that kind of thing. It begins to bring an integration instead of having this tussle well, I don't know if we should watch TV or go to the movies or da 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 da, and we just and we try to get cram too much in our lives. 
instead of singularizing and simplifying life. That's, uh, th- that's, that's, I think, what God really wants us to be doing. But we have to see the beauty of what is happening for Him in the large scale. Okay, so, you get what we're going to do in the whole, whole course? Okay. Now, let me jump into Exodus. One of the stories Jesus no doubt brought forth, I think, was in Exodus. Here's, here's one of my favorite missions passages, you know. It seems like, you know, God's, God's you know, destroying uh, Egypt. Blam, blam, blam. Each one of these, each one of these um, uh, plagues, you know, just slams into Egypt. And at one point, the, uh, the, the magicians go up to Pharaoh and says, Don't you know Egypt is destroyed? You know, it's like, get, get real. Wake up. This guy is going to destroy us. Do what he says. And God... God uh, took the cue. When Pharaoh hardened his heart, God says, okay, well, let it be hardened. We don't have time to go into the hardening of the heart phenomena. But here's Moses approaching him after Egypt's been slammed into, bam, 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 all these different things. And he's, he's going to him, and, and uh, you know, how is, how is God being famous? Who is, which God is this? And, and this is what Moses says, let my people go that they may worship me. This time I'll send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know, this is Exodus 9 verse 14, that there is no one like me in all the earth. So what God's trying to do is to distinguish himself at this early part of the story. Distinguish himself from all the other gods that were on the shelf, that were in the God market of the day. All the different national, national little deities they carve out this and, and, and circulate that. And there were rumors that, that we got good crops when we prayed three times this way. Oh, that works then. And, and you know, people were suckers then as they are now. And, and you know what it's like to be one. So you can't, you can't put people down. But it's just it's like there was no established body of information. There wasn't a track record of the one high holy God dealing with anybody. It wasn't widely known. Everybody just experiencing whatever they thought would work. And Egypt, you see, was one of the most godded places on the planet. You could shop there and find whatever you want. In fact, only Egypt had the gods that would do the river like no other place. Because, man, all the gods, these priests, they kept their secrets. They wouldn't do all the deal. But every year, the priest would do certain things. And then the river would, like, grow. And then it would shrink. And they would, you know how the Nile was just... It, it was just the rainfall way down south. But it was like they had this river that would rise. And there wasn't even rain around, you see. You see, so how do you get the river to that? Well, it's just, you've got to know how to do the... God, you know, talk to our gods, you know. And so Egypt was, was, was you know, considered to be in that era throughout... In the world that communicate with itself, that part of the world, it's like, man, this is ultimate Godland. But God chooses that place at that juncture of history to smash into all of human history, put himself on public record forever after. And, 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 and these plagues, what's with it with the plagues? Every one of the plagues, you know, like frogs, what, what, what's that? You know, turns out every one of the plagues was a direct strike against one of the gods of Egypt. Did you know that? Liberal, conservative scholars alike agree on that. That there's something about the gods of Egypt. There was a special god they had that would like deal with gnats. Well, so we never have gnats. There's a certain kind of, a whole shelf of gods, a whole room full of them would take care of like, you know, the cattle would never have any problems or mishap and all that. So they had that covered. 
And they had the great high sun god, you know. And so what did you, what did you do with that? Lights out. Couldn't see the hand in front of your face, you know. So there's every one of the, every one of the, 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 the programs that one of the gods had, or the god themselves, like the frog god, there's a crocodile god, different things like that, which, which just slammed the face. The great, one of the great highest gods was Pharaoh himself. They all said this kind of thing. And he said, basically... Um, um, you know, when he passes to the underworld, he wouldn't die. Of course, he would just kind of float under and and uh, and this kind of thing in, in Egyptian cosmology. But who would be the great high god after him? After the the pharaoh, the emperor, it would be his son, his firstborn son. You see, and so the last final strike. It says in Exodus twelve twelve that on the night that 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 uh, that, that that angel of death passed through, it says God executed judgment on all the gods. Amazing. This is what God's doing. Is He's sorting Himself out as different and greater than all the other gods of the planet. Putting on a public record. And we're going to uh, go into that greater. For by now, if I put forth my hand, verse 15 of Exodus 9, and struck you and your people with pestilence, you've been cut off from the earth. If I really wanted to incinerate you, I would just... Just vaporize you. It's not hard. Just do it. For indeed, for this cause, I've allowed you to remain in order to show you my power. And here's this. And to proclaim my name through all the earth. To proclaim my name through all the earth. God is, is, is not, he's not taking out an ad in, you know, the, the Hammurabi cuneiform times or something like that. He's, he's somehow putting in the common knowledge of what the whole planet knew was common existence that he had done something awesome and forever. In fact, um, the, um, at the Exodus, here's Isaiah, what he says about it. Who caused his glorious arm to, to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before him to make for himself an everlasting name? And more about the Exodus, verse, Isaiah 63, verse 14. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name, an everlasting name. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is even later in the, on the timeline. And he says, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all the servants and all the people of this land. You knew that they acted arrogantly toward them. Nehemiah 9, verse 10. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. As it is to this day. That's, that's a thousand years later or more. Is that right? Oh, hundreds anyway. So, but it's, it's the other end of, of, of the Old Testament history there. And so there's something global going on with this exodus. Now, in the middle of it, this, this, this is wrong, it's Exodus 3, not 13. Um, this, is, this is something that throws people sometimes. Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers sent me to you. They'll say, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And we're gonna, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Now, on the, on the second page, I've defined something, what I call the name. When referring to God in Scripture, the reference or name tag name, there's three different... Uh, when the Bible says the name of God, it can mean three different things. Name tag. If we had name tags, it would it would say Lois, it would say Debbie, it would say John, it would say Dave, and 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 that's how we sort ourselves out from different people. What is what are some of God's names of the name tag sort? Give me a few samples. I have some there. What are some others? You can't be wrong. There's no Jehovah Rapha. There's a whole Jehovah slash series, and that's been I got a lot of publicity recently. What else is there? Yahweh. What are some other names? We're not trying to find the one. 
What are there's hundreds? El Shaddai, Most High, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, goes on, Rose of Sharon, etc., etc., all kinds of great things, Prince of Peace, all kinds of good stuff. Which one is God's real name? Now you can start a cult over this. It's not like, like how, how is he going to be listed in, in the phone book? You know, um, it, it, that's not the point. Listen to the other two kinds of names. There's the revelatory name. There's something marvelous about any one of these names because none of them is a result of a name contest. We say, well, what should we call God? I mean, he does strange things. He doesn't show up. We never see him. You know, you know it, it, it's not like that. God has told us who he wants to be called every time. But as we ponder some of these names, El Shaddai, the Almighty, just the strength and the, and the might and the goodness, as we ponder that kind of name and, 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 and focus our heart on it, not just a mystic kind of deal, there's some sort of thing where God reveals His character through that name. You've heard that before. You've experienced it. You think long enough about, about you know, thinking about Rose of Sharon. You go, Who's Sharon, you know? But, but somehow, there's something, he's, he's, he is, there's something floral and beautiful and fragrant about this utterly masculine being Jesus that attracts everything that I have to bring in my heart and, and there's something about that and what is it? something about the name of God starts unveiling his character what I kind of think is like any one of those names on his name tag you ponder it long enough it's like whoa start dissolving it's like a window into his heart and, he starts, and God intends the names of God not just be to be the reference but to be revelatory to tell us something about himself the third meaning is what I call the fame name that is his reputation this is very crucial everything hangs on if you get this at this point. The fame name is, is the track record, the reputation that accords to someone. Now, people have fame names. They have a reputation. That's what I mean. Don't you go off and get call it UT and, and get pregnant and ruin the family name. Can you imagine something like that being said? You could almost imagine it. What does it mean, a family name? It, it means that the Boudreaux's in in Jacksonville, Florida, are you know transplanted Creoles that have a certain kind of down south, old south, well moneyed something or other. You know, so there's something like that. And you know that there's a whole expectancy of what you can count on that person or that family to be because of why? Because of the of the known stories that go that way. Now, God, you see. Throughout scripture, there's this phrase, the name of God, and very often the phrase, the name of God, refers to God's fame name. So, when he tells Pharaoh, I'm going to proclaim my name to all the earth, he's not saying, I'm going to have a big loudspeaker say, Yahweh, roll out. He's starting to establish a track record about himself. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, catch this in this, in this interesting passage in, um, in Exodus 3, not 13. It's a mistake in the typo thing here. But he says, they'll ask you, what is God's name? Who is this guy? Who is this God? Now, they know which God it is. But what, what they're actually saying is, what kind of track record does he have? And thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, if they were just looking for the, pho- for the syllables, the phonemes, the, what, what thing you spell and pronounce 
verse um, 14 would have been enough. But verse 15 says, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So which is his name forever? He's not really talking about Yahweh, the spelled out word, the virtually unpronounceable. I'm convinced that he's saying that my track record name, my fame name, that I'm going to be the same as forever as I as have ever been with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look to the track record with that series of generations, with that family, with that people. That's who I want to be remembered for. I'm not going to ever start over again establishing my track record. I'm going to establish my name, my track record, my reputation once on planet Earth. It's going to be with one family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how I'm going to be known globally and forever. I don't have alternate startups of how I would specially reveal myself. People may apprehend me. They may listen in to what's shouting from the heavens about the glory of God. But as I specially divulge myself and deal in the acts of, of people to show who I am, I got one startup and one finish. It's with the, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my memorial name to all generations. Does that make sense? Try it out for size. You may disagree with that, but I, I don't know how else you're going to go. You have, you have to start a cult otherwise, really. you got to say that he only, he only has one name, where Scripture is loaded with names. And, and Exodus 6 could be confusing for you too because it says, God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, Genesis 15, early in, the, in Abraham's account, Abraham calls God, he says, he calls Yahweh, Lord. How come you're not coming through? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all have dealings with this God by that name, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever. So this confuses some people. But here's what it is. I am that I am could also be translated, catch this, I cause to be what will be caused. Basically, I come through with what I promise. That's my, that's my best corner of the full vastness of whatever that ineffable name means. But, but, but somehow God comes through with what He says He will. He causes to be, what's the, He's behind everything, He's at the far edge of everything. But as, as you play, as you see, I am that I am, playing out on a timeline, if He says something's going to come forth, it will come forth. Abraham, in Genesis 15, the very passage I mentioned, says, Hey, you promised, haven't seen a son yet, where's the family? God said, and, and, and so he hadn't seen. That's exactly what God says. They knew me as God Almighty. 318 guys with sticks go off and beat, you know, five empire armies. But they never really saw the land. The only piece of land they owned was a burial plot. And I promised them to give them the whole land. They haven't seen anything yet. But I'm going to come through now. I established my covenant to give them. But I've heard the groanings, I've remembered my covenant. And say to them, I am come down. I will take you from my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord who brought you out. That's Exodus 6. And so he, he is going to reveal himself in track record history form. He's going to do it. Now what happened? Exodus 15. Uh, actually Exodus 14. No, we don't have time for that. Exodus 15 was an awesome thing. 
That's when the Red Sea happened. On the other side of the, of the Red Sea, they started singing and dancing, playing tambourines. And this is part of what they said, Exodus 15, 14. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaves of Moab, trembling, grips them. And the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall on them. And, and see, something is going on. The peoples are recognizing already what's going on. You say, well, that's a nice song. Look at Genesis, Exodus 18. Jethro. Right after they get through the Red Sea, they come. Sure, he was married to the family, but this is Jethro, the priest of Midian. Not just a priest. He's the grand poobah. And he really knows... He's, he's able to judge on religious affairs of the earth at this time. I didn't even know the story was in there. Because he's zoomed to the judging parts, you know. He, he's like, gets 70 guys. But this happens right before that. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel. He heard that all that God had done, verse 1. And verse 9, he rejoiced. And he says, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. He delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, verse 11, that the Lord is greater than all the gods. You see, see what God was doing? He was distinguishing, dis, separating out, lifting up His name different than all the other gods. And He's going to do that once. He's not going to start over again. And, uh, and so what God was doing is making his name great. And, uh, and it turns out that all Israel had to do was make his name known. It became clear that, that he was calling them to be a people for his name. Because God wanted to be known in all the earth. The Exodus was a global affair. It, it goes on to say, you know, the, the different things after that were were globally known. Look at look at Joshua. Later in Joshua seven, he has a has a, a particular bad loss at Ai. Remember that one one battle got they fought and lost the Canaanites and all that happens to the land. Verse nine, Joshua seven nine. They'll hear of it. And they'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And then he turns his clothes and says, "And what will you do for your great name?" something was up in the earth the Bible isn't just about Jewish people until Jesus comes God was doing something global right at the very start of Abraham even before that of course but it starts playing out there's a global affair going on we're going to see that we're going back to Abraham and the worship extravaganza that comes out in Melchizedek so like I said the first we're going to come back and loop back on this story when God receives it all but I've just given you evidence that this really was done publicly, openly. Here's, here's a couple chapters later. Remember um, how they were coming through like a, a steamroller juggernaut, just wiping out whole peoples as God had, had declared He wanted them to do. And um, by the way, the only testimony we have from the, uh, the, one of those vanquished kings of Canaan and we're kind of unjust, you know. How is that the kind, lovely God of missions, you know, that, to go and just wipe out whole peoples and cities, you know, kill their dogs and little kids and everything, you know. What is that? So the only testimony we have was one of the kings. He says, says, as I have done, so it has been repaid to me. The only testimony we have is this is just. Anyway, we'll, we'll visit that a little bit later. What, goes, what happens here is the, the Canaan uh, uh, conquest is on and peoples are being wiped out and there's one people right in the path 
they get a smart thing. They say, we'll pretend we're from a long ways away. So they, they got dressed up like they were from, you know, Siberia or something like that. Got on donkeys, you know, and, and got all old clothes and all old newspapers. They packed a bunch of old newspapers. What do I mean? See, the, the news they brought from verse 9 and 10, it didn't say anything about Jericho. So it was like, because they wouldn't have known about that when they left. So we know who did you did like six months ago. So we got on the horse and came. Why? Because, verse 9, because of the name of the Lord your God. We've heard about him and we've come. And so, and so God had done something global in establishing it. Now, different things advanced. You find in Samuel and David's life, even... even um, well, even David and Goliath. I mean, if you start looking at the Bible as if it was one singular story that's unfolding with, a, with one key person at the center of it. Something's happening for God. God is orchestrating something for himself. With it, he's saving people to himself. It's not all just how God feels nice toward people. is altruistic occasionally. No, God is doing something for himself. He's worthy of it. And, and, and David knows that. When we say David and Goliath sermons or something like that, I know you've never heard one from here, but like this, but you know, it's like, got any giants in your life? Debt, divorce, something, something up, you know? It's like, wow, you know, yeah, I'm facing a big thing, you know? And so we, that, that little drama can overlay on circumstances that you're fumbling and fighting with. Now that may preach, but it's not what the text is about because, you know, Goliath starts defaming God openly. Look what David says, you come to me in the sword and spear, verse 45, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And we usually don't read the kids all of verse 46 because it, it sounds really gross. But, uh, but the, the downstroke, the, the last phrase is that all the earth may know that there is a God, a different sort of God, you see, in Israel. That's what David thought this whole event was about. David himself, right there doing it. i got to believe that that's really what the event was about, no matter what can be preached about it. And if that's what that incident was about, you see, then, then we need to re-examine how that story fits in with the big saga. We've read the Bible as if it was Aesop's fables. Little disjointed series of stories, each of which with a little moral at the end, you see. It turns out there's no plot to Aesop's fables. There's no purpose in it. It's just a little moralism. And it turns out that there's this huge saga we've got at the middle. And it starts being a scintillating, lovely story that is alive. It's still happening. And God is welcoming you to step into it. To step into this story for His glory every bit as much as Jesus walks up along a couple guys going to Emmaus starts telling these stories. Now, um, the place for his name, when they got into um, they got into this land, see, God said there would be one place. A place for my name to dwell. That's Deuteronomy 12. That's how he describes what you're supposed to build. He says, destroy every other kind of real estate building that's permanently established there. Don't change the name on those nice temples. So, well, that's great stuff. I mean, rock carved everything like that. We could just change it, put God up, you know, take the, take the statue out. He says, no, obliterate it. Obliterate their name from that place. Build something entirely. No name switcheroos. God doesn't want any mixed 
associations with himself. See, what is God doing? All along, he's sorting himself out from all the other gods, not just showing himself greater, but absolutely lovely and different. So he says, there'll be an encounter house. There'll be a place where you can know me as I reveal myself. It's a place for my name to dwell. It doesn't just say G-O-D up in hologram. It says, whoa, look at the dwelling and the names up there in the sky. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. The place for his name to dwell is where God could be met and encountered. Listen how this temple was dedicated. Do we have time on the tape still? Okay. 1 Kings 8 is how this thing's dedicated. God gets a people for his name, but here's a place for his name. 1 Kings 8, Solomon's praying. They built this thing. It was in David's heart all the way along. I could, as you study David's life, we don't have time tonight, but, but you start finding he has something for the name of God. It's just in him to, do, to have something for the name. So it's, it's in David's heart to build a place for God's name. Not just to put, build a monument for God, that's not what it is. It's to say put God, chip God's name in rock so we never forget this God and He's pretty awesome God or something like that. No, it's where people go to encounter Him in full revelatory glory. Solomon dedicates this thing. And he says, uh, he, he, he makes it clear, this is not God's summer home. He doesn't pick up his mail here. He doesn't do his, he doesn't like get, uh, you, know, you know, do weekend visits or something like that. This is where he's heard and encountered. And we don't go over all of verse 27 to 30. But 41 is amazing as he dedicates his temple. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel. Just to make sure, what is a foreigner? Not of your people Israel. So we got that. When he comes from a far country, why will they come? For your namesake. What does that mean? Next paraphrase tells, parenthesis tells it. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. They're going to hear about you. And they'll come. Gosh, did people really do that? They really did. We're going to see one instance is how they did. They'll hear great things and they'll say, maybe we can know this God like they do. He says, now they'll come and they'll pray. And they may even not get here, but they just pray toward this place. When you hear them pray even in this direction, here in heaven, you don't live here, but here from heaven, do all that the foreigner calls in you. Why? That they could come to know you in their own little Gentile way. No. That they may know your name. They may come to know you. See, by your name means as you intend yourself to be known. But they don't have a conjecture. They don't have their own experience. They don't make up their own theories. But because of prayer and answer prayer, there's some sort of dynamism of encounter that they locked in on the one singular God as He's, re- as he's revealing Himself. Know you by name. Tell us to fear you. See, to fear God is not to be scared of Him, not to be terrorized by Him. You go. Anybody that you know is growing abundantly in their life with God. They know God. Ask them sometime about the fear of the Lord. I did that once, and just this glazed look came over their face, and it was like, and it was like, whoa, it was fire. They're ablaze. They're, they're hot for God. So and, they, and they said something about intimacy. I said, No, I want to know the, the fear of the Lord. I says, No. It's like close to God. And I've come up with this phrase. The nearer you get, the fear you get. Because he's dreadful. He's awesome. And yet, and does good. Although he's utterly powerful. He's alien from you. He could unmake you in a flash. And yet, he's adopted you to himself as his dear child. 
beyond comprehension. To fear the Lord is not just to have an awareness that, wow, something could happen. To fear the Lord is to walk near and somehow being examined, being, being seen. All the ways to the core, you're being saying, yes, I love being known because there's nothing in my life that I have perversed or twisted or turned away from my beloved God. Say, check me out. Check me out more because I know He's redeeming me. That's the fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord is a, is a, is a shorthand expression for intimacy with God. And so says that Solomon prays that all the peoples, not some, that all the peoples, the different family groups, the different nations would come to know God by name to fear Him, get a personal relationship just as do your people Israel that's what the temple's about, that's what the whole Old Testament people is about, that's the whole purpose of why God singled out this one people did it ever happen? 1 Kings 10, next page now when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon Queen of Sheba, you know that story share about the fame of Solomon concerning what? the, fame, the name of the Lord God was associated. Solomon just wasn't wealthy and, and rich and, and wise and something like that. Everything about him got bundled with a package about God's with us or something. God's doing something big. Really. She has something deep in her heart. There's something, uh, something alive in this woman's heart. She, verse 2. She spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And when she saw everything, she perceived it all. Look at the end of verse 5. There wasn't any more spirit in her. It's just like, oh, blow me down. What was it she, she had in her heart? Difficult question.